Greetings, church and friends of the church. Um, in the last episode, we confess with honesty and humility that we have a problem with idol worship in America, claiming the lives of our innocent uh, sisters and brothers and our innocent children. Atlanta, Boulder, now South Carolina. We are starting to assume that this is normal, but it's not. Our idol worship, whether conscious or subconscious, on purpose or unintentional, is causing immoral gun deaths. I don't claim to know exactly who or what the idol is, because I think it's, it's maybe different for each of us. But we know that this idol worship is real by the rising number of innocent people, and particularly children, that gun deaths are claiming. Maybe that idol's violence, maybe it's the gun itself, maybe the idol is the assault weapon, maybe the idol is money, maybe the idol's masculinity, maybe the idol is individual liberty at all costs, maybe the idol is a false sense of personal safety, maybe the idol is partisan political loyalty. Whatever the idol is, or a combination of idols is, we have to know and remember that idols don't deliver what they supposedly promise. They can't because they don't actually exist. Idols and false gods are a phantom. They're a projection of our misplaced desires and hopes and fears. And we can give everything, everything to an idol, including that last and most valuable gift, the lives of our innocents and our children. And yet that idol still can't deliver what we hope. And yet we as a nation continue to operate under this false assumption that the lives of these innocent Americans and children are a necessary sacrifice to whatever God this is, so that this God will save us from bad guys with guns or overreaching government with guns or immigrants with guns or people of color who come from the cities to the suburbs with guns. We accept the sacrifice because we think this God will grant us the protection, the safety, the comfort for which we are longing, and this is false. Innocent lives, particularly children, will only continue to die in greater frequency and volume. And so to move beyond this idol worship, this deadly and wrong idol worship, we have to find a new way to stop operating according only to these deep-seated physical impulses that compel us into these fears, attitudes, and norms that are accelerating death. And to operate by a different motivation and vision from within us instead. To, to move beyond these physical impulses that fear triggers within us. To, to make negative assumptions about others. To, to prepare ourselves to fight, loaded to the teeth. And to, to join ranks tribally with those who think like us. We have to move beyond the ability to worry with a greater ease about these things. We have to intentionally disrupt the physical with the spiritual. And so in this episode, I'm going to step us through a process of spiritual practices that I've come to understand are able to help nurture a life in this world together that is not just reactive, and animalistic and physical and impulsive, but is intentional and is able to make for more peace. Now, depending on how uh, often you pause and for how long you pause when prompted in between some of these practices, 
this could take 60 minutes. And so make sure that you have time before diving in. And as we begin, I offer one prerequisite, which is that you not enter into this process if your physical impulses and defense mechanisms have been recently triggered. So if you've recently watched or listened to or read a news network that has spun their message in ways that make you feel fearful or angry, or if you've recently seen something on social media as you've been scrolling through that stoked anger or fear or a sense of righteous indignation or antagonism against the other side, or you've just been ruminating in your own mind and heart in ways that make you angry, scared, tribal, then your body and your mind are not ready. And so go spend at least an hour or two doing something that brings calm to your mind and your spirit. Get outside and admire the beauty, listen to some classical music, take a nap, find a way to undig your heels so that you can truly approach this with an open heart and spirit rather than with opposition. So pause the video here, go spend an hour or two or a day or two and then come back when you are ready. If you've not been uh, recently wound up and triggered into this place of reactivity, um, or, or if you had, but you took the time to let those hormones dissipate and those defenses fade, then let's begin. The first practice in this process is meditation. I invite you now to ground yourself through this practice in the goodness and the beauty and the safety of this present moment so that your body feels completely safe in this moment. There are an infinite number of ways that people practice meditation, this intentional clearing of the mind so that it and the body can be relaxed and operate truly and logically without the interference and disruption uh, and the lies of the fearfulness of our self-defense impulses. But for this process, I'm gonna guide you through a particular practice. So make sure you are seated comfortably with your hands in your lap. And we're going to work our way from toe to head while doing the following. We're gonna take a deep breath in while focusing on an area of the body. We're gonna start with our feet. We're gonna hold that breath in while telling ourselves, I am safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me. There is only good. And then while exhaling, we're gonna try and feel and experience the relaxation and the lack of tension in that part of our body. So let's begin. Let's begin with a deep breath in to the count of four. Hold to the count of four. and exhale to the count of four. And again. Hold. Exhale. Once more.
Now we take a deep breath in while focusing on our feet. Hold while saying, I am safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me. There's only good. And then exhale, feeling the relaxation in your feet. Take a blank deep breath. Hold. And exhale. Deep breath in, calling into focus your legs. Hold, I am safe and relaxed. There's no danger threatening me. There's only good. And exhale, feeling relaxation in your legs. Another blank breath in. Breathe in, calling to focus your stomach. And hold, I'm safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me, there's only good. And exhale, feeling and experiencing the relaxation in your stomach. Blank breath in. Hold. And exhale. Deep breath in, calling in to focus your back. Hold, I'm safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me, there's only good. And exhale, feeling your back begin to relax. Blank breath in. And hold. And exhale. Deep breath in, calling into focus your arms. Hold, I'm safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me. There's only good. And exhale, experiencing the relaxation in your arms. Deep breath in. Hold. Deep breath in, focusing on your neck. Hold. I'm safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me. There's only good. And exhale, feeling the relaxation in your neck. Deep breath in. Hold. And exhale. Deep breath in, calling to focus your entire body. And hold, I'm safe, I'm relaxed. There's no danger threatening me. There's only good, and exhale. The whole body again, deep breath in. Hold, I'm safe, I'm relaxed. 
There's no danger threatening me. There's only good. An exhale. Invite you to rest in this place of calm and relaxation for a few moments, continuing your 444 breaths, and then we will proceed. As we approach our second spiritual practice, I invite you to pay attention now for a moment just to how your body's feeling. And if you still feel tense, if you um, still feel yourself uh, on alert in any way, I invite you to rewind and to go through the meditative practice again. Um, and if you feel like you need it a third time, do it a third time um, until you are in a place where you feel calm and ready to proceed. All that said, our second spiritual practice in this process is gratitude. Now, gratitude is the antidote for scarcity, that scarcity being that lie that says we're at risk because we don't have enough of something. In this case, the lies that scarcity um, have to say in this conversation have to do with not having enough safety, enough guns, or enough bigger and stronger guns than somebody else. So gratitude can quiet these lies by connecting us to the reality that we are actually safe where we are. Now, this isn't true for every American, and I, and I acknowledge the privilege that I have of, of naming my safety in this moment. Some do live in danger. However, um, maybe most of us who are participating in this don't, and most of us are quite safe where we are without a weapon. And so I invite you to pause this episode um, when prompted and to name your gratitude for all the ways that you are safe in the midst of your daily living. Allow yourself to become aware of the safety of your neighborhood and how no one is seeking to knock down your door with harmful intent and how you are able to walk about in safety Become aware of your safety while running errands, while going to and from school or work or wherever else your days take you. And feel and experience your gratitude for this reality and gift of safety. And so pause now and ground yourself in your gratitude for the safety of your days. You may simply reflect on this in mind, you may choose to journal, um, jot down a few notes about where you feel safe. Um, and when you are finished and you are feeling a sense of gratitude for the safety of your days, return and resume. The third spiritual practice is prayer which if you've been following this series, um, 
I've come to understand is not about saying the right words at the right time in the right place, but at its core is an exchange of desires and intentions between the self and the divine. That's what the word prayer literally means when Jesus talked about it. The exchange of the desires and the intentions of the self for God's desires and intentions. When the scriptures talk about Jesus going out to pray, this is what it was. An account of the desires of the self and surrendering them that he might take up the will and the desires of the divine. And so in order for us to truly pray, we need a way of naming and claiming God's true desires and intentions. If we don't have a foundation upon which to base our prayers, we end up just manufacturing a God understanding that aligns with our own needs and desires. We project our own needs, desires on God. As Anne Lamott wrote, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. We need a foundation. And for me, the foundation upon which I build my own practice of prayer is the teaching of Jesus. Um, but in the series, we've acknowledged that his golden rule-based teachings are, are not exclusive to him. But for me, my understanding of God's desires and intentions are named and narrated by the words and actions of Jesus. Into a world where Jews and Gentiles and Romans were taught by the norms of their culture to be antagonistic toward one another and where their fears of one another bred reactive, irrational, needless violence, Jesus taught this. Do not fear those who might kill the body. Do not live with a constant fear of being harmed by someone you consider to be an other. He taught, do not worry. Do not spend your days concerned about a hypothetical future that you can neither predict nor control, for it won't add a single hour to your life. He taught, you've heard it said that you are to love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, you are to love your enemies. You are to love all those who are other to you. He taught, put away your sword for those who live by the sword, die by the sword. He taught, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, forgive. Do not retaliate and turn the other cheek. He taught that God is glorified, that God's true identity and intentions and desires for this world are revealed to the world when people are one not divided against one another in antagonism or fear or violence, but are reconciled, knit together in relationships of mutual belonging and care. This is when God is truly revealed and glorified. This is when we are living according to the divine intention and not our own. His was a voice that joined in the tradition of the prophets of Israel, who proclaimed God's desires and intentions to the people when they devolved into unfaithful antagonism and violence. God's desires and intentions, they proclaimed, is that nation would no longer lift up sword weaponry against nation. God's desire and intention was for people to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that they would stop fearfully and irrationally placing their trust in weapons and instead would fill their hands with life-giving and life-sustaining tools seeking well-being and life together rather than seeking more violence.
God's desire and intention was for people to enter into relationships with those who were other to them, seeking their welfare instead of their destruction and discovering a common peace. In prayer, we're invited to exchange our own fearful and impulsive desires of antagonism, violence, retaliation, living by the sword, for God's desires and intentions of mutual belonging, love and concern for neighbor, nonviolence, and peace. In prayer, we're invited to name how we allow political leaders, religious leaders, family members, celebrities, whoever, to shape our desires and intentions. And then to exchange our loyalties to them for loyalty and commitment to God's way. And so now I invite you to pause this video or podcast and engage in this practice of contemplating, naming, claiming the divine desires as your own, however you are best suited. Maybe that's in the quiet. Maybe that's with music or while journaling. Maybe this is a, something that takes you a seconds. Maybe it's something that takes you minutes or maybe it's something you want to think about and do for hours as you are walking about this world um, in a prayerful posture, considering the divine intention. When you feel like you've done your best to set down your own desires and intentions and that you've claimed the divine desires of peace, come back, press play and resume. fourth spiritual practice in this process is mindfulness. Whereas meditation is trying to intentionally clear the mind, mindfulness is trying to call something or someone in particular into focus within the mind, such that our ability to understand their circumstances and to empathize with their emotions and feelings is awakened. To put ourselves in their shoes and to see the world through their own eyes and to feel with their feelings. Because this particular spiritual process is on the plague of gun violence, our mindfulness practice seeks to deepen our awareness, our understanding, our empathy for those who have actually been tragically affected by this plague. So this is not a time to succumb to the temptation to think only about the self with fear. And so if you feel yourself, returning your focus to yourself. Uh, if in the midst of trying to put yourself in the place of somebody else, you, you start to hear thoughts, yes, but what about me? Reclaim your sense of safety and remind yourself that you are considering others. I invite you now to call to mind someone you know and love who lives with depression. Try to understand their desperation, their sadness, the danger in their irrationality of their thinking because the majority of suicides are gun deaths and the majority of all gun deaths are suicides. Consider how access to a gun triples the risk of that person you know and love successfully committing suicide. And maybe you call to mind someone who has lost a loved one to suicide, either because you actually know a family or because you use your imagination trying to understand 
and to feel. Now become mindful of a woman you know who was or is in an abusive relationship. Allow yourself to feel her fear of both staying and leaving while knowing that access to a gun makes it five times more likely that her abuser will kill her. Try to understand and imagine how you would feel and how her loved ones would feel if this were to happen. Become mindful of a police officer you know. I have two, two in mind, as well as their wives and children. And allow yourself to feel the fear of these officers having to run toward gun violence or walking into any situation not knowing if the person they approach has a deadly weapon of war that they got at the local store. And allow yourself to imagine how the family would feel if that officer was lost to a shooter, like Boulder Officer Eric Talley, because the more guns there are, the more risk there is to officers. Now become mindful of a young child or children that you know and love. Feel the depth of your love and your concern for them. And then become mindful of a parent or grandparent who lost a beloved child or grandchild to an accidental gun death because that child was curious about the gun in their home or lost them because they were an innocent victim in the wrong place at the wrong time. Feel the feelings, allow the empathy to come. More than a thousand families know this pain and grief and tragedy every year in this country. More than a thousand families know this pain and grief and tragedy every year in this country. Now, if you are a white parent like I am, and you worry for your kids whenever they are out of your sight like I do, try to become mindful of how black mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers feel knowing that their family is 10 times more likely to be affected by gun violence than yours. As much as I worry, what must that be when it is multiplied tenfold? How might that feel? Now become mindful of an adult that you know and love, an adult child, a spouse, a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, friend. Feel the depth of your love and concern for them. 
and then try to understand what it would feel like to lose that person to gun violence. More than 100 families every day feel this pain and grief in our nation. And the vast majority of them are not grieving someone who was complicit in some sort of gang violence or other illegal activity that put them at higher risk of this kind of death. But they are people who are getting their nails done or shopping at the grocery store or treating a patient or at a concert or a nightclub or a church Bible study or a teacher at a school. More than a hundred families every day feel this pain that we are trying to empathize with. That is a lot of pain. These are just some of the stories that help us to understand the impact that this idol worship has on real people every day. These are not hypotheticals. They are not made up. There are real people, good and kind people, adults and children who suffer loss every day and then have to carry that grief and sadness and anger for the rest of their lives. Allow yourself to understand how that feels. Allow yourself to empathize without putting a wall around your emotions. Allow yourself to feel the depth of sadness and grief and anger as though it were you who was the one that lost a beloved. By your mindfulness of others, allow your understanding of what guns are doing to this country to be about the injustice and tragedy and horror of death and grief afflicting so many others. And not about you or your fears or your tribe telling you what to think and to do that make you blind and deaf and indifferent to the suffering of others. Feel and experience the hell that we will continue to inflict upon so many others by continuing the status quo. If you feel you need more time in your practice of being mindful of those tragically affected by this plague, feel free to press pause, to reflect, to journal, whatever you need to do to sit in that place of empathy and the deeper understanding of the real impact on real people. And then once you're done, plus pray, press play to resume. Fifth spiritual practice is naming with honesty the truth of what we are saying and hearing others say. Now, this is often the hardest practice when we are stuck in impulsive and reactive mode and our tendencies to antagonism, negative assumption about others and tribalism are compelling us to accept lies as truth for the sake of preserving our sense of safety. But as we let down those defenses and our bodies and minds are restored to a place of calm and rationality, we can honestly see and name the truth. We will name a few truths here in this practice. But this, this process um, is not magic and will not transform all of us in spirit in one try. This is meant to help provide 
um, an example practice for what a daily spiritual life looks like, integrating these practices into our daily living, rather than this being understood as a one-time only miracle spiritual experience. So that said, let's, let's name some truths, knowing that this is not the fullness of the truth, but these are important truths to name. With honesty, we confess that it is true that we really do have a problem. The first step in a meaningful and lasting change is admitting that there's a problem. It is true that America leads the higher income nations of the world in gun deaths, and it's not even close. We have more than 11 gun deaths per 100,000 citizens annually. The next highest in higher income nations is Switzerland at 2.8, just a quarter of the death rate that we have. Australia has less than one gun death per 100,000 and the UK has 0.2, which means 50 times less. And Japan has statistically zero gun deaths. We also have the most guns per capita. And so we confess with honesty that more guns does not equal more safety and less death. More guns equals more death and less safety. With honesty, we confess that non-Americans on American soil do not pose a greater threat to us than our fellow Americans. We are far more likely to be unsafe because of the fellow Americans we see every day in our homes, our neighborhoods, our streets, our workplaces, our schools, and our stores than a non-American. 2016 study analyzed American deaths from 1975 through 2015, and they discovered that as Americans, we have lifetime odds of dying by murder at the hands of a fellow American of one in 250, while the lifetime odds of being killed by any foreign-born individual are one in 46,000, including a one in 46 million chance of being killed by a refugee and a one in 138 million chance of being killed by an undocumented immigrant. We are nearly a hundred times more likely to die from an asteroid hitting us than we are to be killed by an undocumented immigrant. And so with honesty, we confess that there is no threat posed by refugees and immigrants that demands that we are ready to defend ourselves with weapons. With honesty, we confess that laws and regulations are effective deterrents and are not violations of some God-given right. The National Institute of Justice, a federal agency, released a report in 2016 entitled Five Things About Deterrence. They state that their research shows clearly that the chance of being caught is a vastly more effective deterrent than even the most draconian of punishments, and that the most effective intervention is therefore not to increase penalties, but to strengthen a potential criminal's perception of the certainty of being caught. And so with honesty, we confess two things. One, yes, that a law cannot stop every potential criminal from blatantly breaking the law. 
but also two, that yes, laws and regulations that create the fear of an increasing risk of being caught are effective and do work. There is an irrefutable and direct correlation between the presence of gun laws and the numbers of gun deaths. With honesty, we confess that America has the weakest gun laws of any higher income nation, which correlates directly with America having the most gun violence, gun deaths, and firearm suicides among all these nations. With honesty, we confess that the states that have the most gun laws as deterrents have the fewest gun deaths. The CDC data on gun deaths was used in a Boston University research project that compared the rates of laws and deaths and determined that there was a direct link. An earlier study by Boston Children's Hospital and the Harvard School of Public Health in 2013 proved the same. Drunk driving laws are effective deterrents to avoidable deaths. Seatbelt laws are effective deterrents to avoidable deaths. Laws demanding vehicle registration and driver licensing are effective deterrents to avoidable deaths. None infringe upon inalienable rights of responsible drivers. And if we are honest, we confess that gun laws do the same. These are some confessions within this conversation that are made with honesty. They are not political or partisan statements. They're confessions of truth made with honesty. Statements that deny these truths, scientifically proven, and statements that stoke fear are the ones of which we need to be suspicious. They are the partisan and politically motivated statements. Telling the truth is not political. The truth is not told for personal or partisan gain, but for the sake of a common well-being. For as Jesus taught, here's another part of that spiritual foundation upon which I build. It is only the truth that can set us, us together, free. Truth breeds freedom, but lies breed captivity, destruction, and oppression. These are just a few confessions made with honesty. There are many more we might make as part of this discussion. So if you are compelled, pause here, do some research on your own in search of the truth. And then when you are ready, hit play and resume. The sixth spiritual practice is navigating the accountability cycle. So there are two episodes uh, on this uh, within this series, if you need a refresher. At this point, we are already a few steps into the cycle. We have an awareness of the current expectations and laws. We have through our mindfulness practice and our confessions uh, considered both an honest accounting of where we are as a society and the tragic consequences of our current system of laws and expectations. The expectations are insufficient and the consequence is that people are dying far too often and needlessly in our country. We're continuing to sacrifice the lives of innocent people and children to this idol. So the next step in the accountability cycle is tough. Accepting responsibility without blaming anyone else, deflecting to anyone else, or a sense of entitlement or privilege. I invite you to pause and to consider how your actions or your inaction and how your voice or your silence has been 
complicit, has been a, a part of this collective culture that has nurtured a plague of gun deaths. And again, if you find yourself starting to think about blaming others, call yourself back to your own self. If you start to deflect away from yourself, if you start to feel a sense of entitlement or privilege to the, to the views that you hold or to the guns that you own, um, Call yourself back to this place. It's just you. It's just you before God uh, with, with whatever honesty and humility you can muster. How have you been complicit in the system that has caused so many deaths? Reflect, journal, and when you're done, resume. Only the truth can set us free. Only honesty, uh, honestly accepting responsibility for our part in this collective failure, can we be free of its reign. Uh, after accepting responsibility, we seek reconciliation with those harmed through reparative actions and the pursuit of forgiveness. We seek a new shared sense of unity with those harmed, those with whom we empathized in our mindfulness practice. And we seek to advocate for and advance a new set of expectations, laws, and norms that are more just and more effectively provide for the safety and the well-being of all people. I invite you to pause again and to consider what actions you are able and compelled to take. What are you willing to do? How are you willing to speak up in order to seek the repair of our collective social fabric rather than participating in its continued destruction? Pause consider, and then come back when you're ready. The seventh spiritual practice is fasting, which is often misunderstood simplistically to be just about not eating. What fasting is, is the intentional choice to respond to an impulse, the impulse to assume negatively about others, the impulse to fight or antagonize, the impulse to tribalize, to respond to that impulse by refraining from indulging that impulse. It's the intentional act of disconnecting yourself from whatever practices and voices are keeping you as a participant in the unjust, unkind, and deadly status quo. And so that could be fasting from Fox News, MSNBC, Facebook, other social media, other websites could be fasting from complaining, blaming, judging, slandering, excluding, hating, avoiding, procrastinating, ignoring, or being indifferent to the realities of this conversation. So pause now and take some time to consider what fasting you need to choose intentionally in order to break yourself out of the cycle of reactivity and antagonism that propagates our collective failure? What is it that's continuing to make you angry and antagonistic? And rather than indulging that, do you have the strength to choose to fast?
pause to reflect, journal, consider, and then resume. The eighth spiritual practice is feasting, which isn't just gorging yourself with indulgence in order to celebrate a spiritual job well done here in this process. Feasting is the intentional sharing of hospitality with someone you might label as other. Feasting is not an individual practice. It is a communal practice. The intentional creating of space for one another with the intention of sharing honestly and listening in order to understand rather than listening to debate or refute or to argue. And so who do you consider to be an other in this conversation about guns and gun violence? From whom does this conversation tend to separate you? Instead of believing the tribal lie that you don't belong together, how could you share time and stories and hospitality with one another? Pause to consider this and devise a plan with intentionality to connect with and spend time with this person or people in order to be gracious, to share, and to listen in order to more deeply understand. Pause to consider, reflect, journal, make a plan, and then resume. So friends, there's certainly a world of additional spiritual practices that might help to nurture uh, a response and intentionality that's grounded in a larger spiritual truth than in physical impulsivity and fear. But, but this set of practices is a good start. It's also critical to acknowledge that spiritual growth and awareness are never perfected. And so these practices can be a cycle through which you journey an infinite number of times. After spending time feasting with an other or others, start over with meditation, prayer, and mindfulness and see where this process takes you a second time around. And then do it again and again and again, because our physical impulses and tendencies and fears aren't going anywhere. They are with us our lifelong, and so our spiritual life needs to be also. They are forever with us, compelling us to self-destructive assumptions and fights and tribalization, and so we need to be forever vigilant in seeking a spirituality to help us overcome them. This is our way forward. Calm, gratitude, a greater and divine intention and desire of peace nurtured through prayer, mindfulness of the other, honesty, accountability, reconciliation, new pursuits for the sake of a shared well-being, fasting and feasting and starting all over again. This is our way forward, a spiritual way forward. It may be a religious way forward for you. It may not be, and that's okay. They're not, they're not, they can overlap, but they are not the same thing. I can only hope that this time has been helpful. I've never offered anything like this before, so I, I hope and pray that this, that this has been helpful. I encourage you to not rush off now to, to do something new, but to just sit where you are for um, a few minutes, to take some notes, to reflect um, about what was most helpful, surprising, challenging about this process. I also encourage you to consider other issues or conversations in our society that tend to lead you to these places of anger, fear, antagonism, judgmentalism, partisan tribalism, and to go through a similar process with them as your focus. 
This was an example of a process by which we might nurture a more spiritual understanding in response to the realities of gun violence in America. But this is certainly not the only ill that plagues us as a nation and a people. Poverty, lack of living wages, homelessness, food insecurity, healthcare insecurity, immigration and asylum, drug and alcohol abuse, the, the list of reasons why we need a spiritual foundation and a spiritual approach to life um, is long. And, and we will flail and flounder until we stop just trying to be physical people and awaken the spiritual part of ourselves. But the good news is that we can make progress and we can work toward a better future. We are not hopeless. In fact, the more we go through these practices and processes like this, the more hope we discover because we realize there is a way forward. Friends, stay safe, stay home whenever you can. The pandemic is not gone. Wear a mask, please. Get your vaccination, please. They're safe. Millions of people have gotten them, um, including me and my family, and we are all well, and we are grateful, and we are relieved. <sighs> Peace be with you all.